The Advent theme for this third Sunday in the season is joy. You see it reflected in the verses from Isaiah 35 that are at the top of the bulletin. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Rejoice, rejoice, joy. There it is in these words of promise, these words of prediction, an invitation to joy. And yet I confess that among the themes of Advent, joy is the hardest one for me to access. Peace, hope, love, those are within reach, maybe even within easy reach, but joy is something else. Where to find it? Because I get the image of the desert. I've got enough desert around me and even within me to understand, to identify with that image. But the blossoming, the crocus coming up out of the sand, the bright and vibrant colors showing themselves against the tan and brown of the seemingly barren landscape, this season, this is not a season of crocus or any blooming flowers outside and around. This is not springtime. This is winter, by the way. This is not a season of sunshine, it is more a season of cloud cover. And everything outside is getting less colorful, not more colorful. I wish the inside colors of Christmas were enough to convince me that joy is brightly blossoming, but often they aren't enough. So where is the blossom of joy Where is the color of rejoicing? Where is the running water in what has felt like a desert? How do we come home to joy after feeling like we have been so long in exile? This is a story that is not unfamiliar to many of you, but 20-some years ago, my father and I returned to his hometown, the city that, when he left it in 1945 as a nine-year-old war refugee, was called Stettin, but when we went to it, had been for more than 50 years the Polish city of Szczecin, because the borders of Poland and Germany were moved west immediately after World War II. The year we went on our trip to Poland and Germany as well was 1999, and my father had left his hometown back in 1945, so he hadn't been back in 54 years. For most of that time, it would have been almost impossible for him to return, even if he wanted to, because Poland, a country behind the so-called Iron Curtain, was not accessible, certainly not for West German-born tourists wanting to visit their former hometowns. And not only that, but I think he felt that there was nothing there for him to return to, nothing calling to him from the past, no relatives, no German language or culture, no landmarks. In the days when his family left with urgency and fearfulness all those years ago, the city was being bombed by the Allies. And then after my father and his family left, the city was overtaken and occupied by the Russians. For all intents and purposes, it was over and finished. There was no life for him there anymore. 
And so my father learned to live forward. That's what I said at his funeral, that his chief characteristic was that he lived forward. Life was forward, relationship was forward, energy was forward. In some ways, it was a healthy, even progressive way to live. He was not attached to objects. He was not bound to past mistakes. He was often open and visionary. But in other ways, it was not a helpful quality. He could be impatient with the desire others had for tradition and memory. It was sometimes hard to pin down because you couldn't always understand what the context was behind his ideas and opinions. And there was a part of him that was cut off from what had been. He had never really confronted what had been lost, and therefore I think there was a lot of unexamined and unprocessed anger and grief in him. So in 1999, we made plans to return to his hometown, both of his hometowns, actually. The first hometown, now in Poland, where he was born and raised to the age of nine, and his second hometown, further west in Germany, where his family had settled as refugees as the war unfolded. It felt to me in some ways that the trip to Stettin, Szczecin, was a return for him from exile a chance to come home, even if it really wasn't home anymore. And I realized that was true. The return from exile part was true. When we finally arrived there, and as we traveled around, he got so excited every time he saw something familiar. The apartment building where his family lived before moving to their own home was still standing. Realizing that the street names now in Polish were the same street names they had been in German when he lived there. The bridge connecting his little part of the city to the larger city. The ground under his feet when he walked onto the corner of the shipyard where his family's house and his father's business had been. Even the bomb shelter where they had taken refuge in the worst days of the war. And then more of that excitement and delight when we went to the German town where his family had settled as refugees and we saw the house where they lived and the little workshop behind it where his father had restarted his business and the school my dad had gone to and the cemetery where his father's gravestone stood. It was like each tangible thing, each marker, each building was something that unlocked a sense of homecoming a sense of return after too many years away. It was fascinating to watch. But the most interesting piece, indeed the most joyful piece, had nothing to do with place. It had to do with people. Because stones are stones and bricks are bricks. But life is life. Blossoms are blossoms. Return from exile is only truly fulfilling when the desert blooms. When a desert blooms with life, when water runs again, when there is rejoicing, when there is healing. Joy isn't found in just going back to what was. Joy isn't found in just returning to your once upon a time home, the home that was. It's found in linking the past to the present to the future. It's found in the surprise that what you thought was desert is actually alive. And the biggest joy that my father had in returning from his 54-year exile 
wasn't in seeing some buildings that he remembered or feeling familiar ground under his feet. It was in finding new life in a place that he had left for dead. And this is how it happened. Sometime before we left for our trip, my mother mentioned in prayer time and worship at the small church that she and my father attended that we were going on this trip and where we were traveling. And someone who happened to be visiting in worship that particular morning came up to her afterwards and said, I happen to have relatives who live there. And I'm sure they would be glad to host your husband and your son. Let me get you their contact information. And so they, did, so they did, and we went and stayed with these people sleeping on makeshift beds in their living room. Their son and his girlfriend, Peter and Magda, were studying at the university, and the young woman, Magda, wanted to practice her English. So they became our guides, taking us places and translating from Polish to English for us. These two young people, 19, 20 years old, became our lifeline and our window of opportunity. Magda was especially dynamic and determined. She was the one who got us into the shipyard so that my father could stand on the ground where his family's home had once stood. She did it by charming the security guards and arranging a tour of the shipyard for us. All these years later, the thing I remember most about her along with her energy, her determination to take us every place we wanted to go, and her optimism is the fact that every clothing outfit she wore had some neon color in it. Bright, bright yellow polyester pants. Bright, bright neon green shirt with matching hair bow. We never had to worry about losing sight of her because she, well, everything she wore was an assault on the eyes. As I think about it now, she was quite literally like a bright bloom in the desert. I have pictures of us going around the city. Everything is sort of dark and dingy, and there she is, bright. Those two young people were, in fact, like water in the desert. I think that in that experience during those several days, my father came home from exile and his thirst was quenched. And later when I asked him about how he felt about returning to the place where his childhood had ended and where his family had lost everything, left everything behind, his comment was twofold. First, he said, it's okay. Because after I left here, my life continued, and things happened that never would have happened had I stayed here. And I was nodding along in agreement because I was one of those things that would have never happened. (laughs) And the second thing he said was, this city, this place belongs to these people, these two young people. This is their home. This is where they live. This is where they are alive. And that makes me happy. I think about all that from time to time, and part of what I recognize is that the nine-year-old war refugee could have in no way imagined a man who returned home 54 years later. Not only could he not have imagined that man, he couldn't have imagined the delight, the joy, 
that would accompany the return. Joy lives past our imaginations, our predictions, even our expectations. Joy surprises like a bloom in the desert, like a river of water after the dry season is over. Joy shows itself in new relationships, in a reset of what we thought we wanted or needed, in a new vision of not only what might yet come, but what it has meant for us to get where we are. Joy comes when things are made right, not by our power, but by grace. Joy comes when the lame leap and the blind see and the deaf hear and the speechless sing. That is, when what seemed impossible becomes possible, when we stop ruling out miracles because we haven't given up on imagination, because we haven't given up on hope. Joy comes when something blooms or blossoms. Joy comes when new life is confirmed by something bright and beautiful. Writing about this scripture text and about the theme of joy for dayone.org, Talitha Arnold, a UCC pastor, writes, That's the vision of the 35th chapter of the book of Isaiah, joy that comes as a complete surprise, joy that comes where it has no business being, joy that comes not from our deserving, but from all God's doing. Joy is like that. And then she tells a story from her own experience, a story of surprise, a story of something bright and beautiful. These are for you, Mr. Lacey said as he handed my mother the flowers. My wife surely thought you might like them. He stood on the porch, my mother too flustered to invite him in. That was probably good since the screen door kept him from seeing the tears that welled up in her eyes as she wiped her hands on her apron. I don't remember the specific reason for the flowers. I don't think there was one other than it was the summer when my brother was in the hospital for a long time and my other brother was starting college and my mother was wondering where the money was going to come from on her teacher's salary. But there was no special reason for the flowers. I do remember it was the only time I ever saw Mr. Lacey, who lived across the street, come to our house. I also remember it was the only time I saw someone give my mother flowers. Mr. Lacey went back home after he'd done his errand. My mother wiped her eyes. She wasn't one to cry much. Well, she said, that was certainly a surprise. I wonder where they should go. She dug around under the sink for a vase, filled it with water, and put the flowers on the coffee table in the living room. I remember they stayed there for a long time that summer. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Those, as I said, are the beginning verses of the scripture today from this chapter of Isaiah. And then the very last verse of the chapter is this. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The desert blooms when the exiles return, and joy is in the coming home 
But it's not just coming home to memory. It is coming home to possibility. It's coming home to peace and to hope. It's the joy of something restored. It is God's arms wrapped up, wrapping up the prodigal child, the lost sheep, the wounded traveler. And it is bright. And it is beautiful. Nowhere else during the run-up to Christmas except in this chapter of Isaiah are you going to hear about a blooming crocus. But keep your eye out for the bloom of something that makes you smile. Maybe it's a Mr. Lacey with a bunch of unexpected flowers. My wife surely thought you might like these. Or maybe it's the energetic bright light of a young university student in Tweety Bird yellow pants. Or maybe it's some other splash of color, some other blossom of care. But keep your eyes open. In this season, keep your eyes open. Keep your heart and your mind open, too. Joy may surprise you. On the return from exile, on the return home, it may surprise you. All bright and beautiful. May it be so. Amen.